You want the good news, you want the bad news. I don't like either one of those options. Your words are super wise, man. You are a prophet. You deserve a prophet. You do whatever you want. Who am I to tell you what to do? But you're a psychologist. Well, I know less than you do. You're making me a better parent and a better wife, and thank God you're on the radio. What planet are you on? I don't buy any of that stuff. You know, I was looking for a deeper answer. What are you talking about? You make my afternoon really fun. Enjoy ya. You're about the most exciting thing I have right now. <laughs> now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. You know, I noticed something. I was uh, talking to some guy about insurance. It occurred to me... Here's a guy betting that I'm going to live, and I'm betting him I'm going to die. And I hope he wins. And I have to pay for thinking that way. Just a thought. <laughs> this is Dr. Ray Grandy. Thanks for joining me here. Dr. Zinni person, Monday where I'm looking over to the scroll here. I no longer look at the, uh, well, I got them. They're still sitting there. What a stack. I, I never even got to that stack way back. But I get so many e-persons that uh hard to keep up with all of them. But I do my best to see where we can. Let's see where I, oh, yeah, there's what I wanted to talk about today. I've had folks in my office who are very angry at God for events in their own lives. Their view is, and I had one father say this in almost these words, I played by the rules. I've tried to be a good person. And this is what God has done. Now, obviously, getting past the old, God didn't do it. The view is not all that uncommon. I've seen many people lose their faith or question God severely because something tragic has happened to them because of their suffering through this. My one son that we adopted was in foster care. And I can speak this now because foster father is no longer alive, but he lost his son. And he was very, very angry at God. And, and he concluded that uh, God must not exist because he's, if he is, he's not a very nice person and uh, he doesn't want anything to do with that very nice person. And it struck me. I remember remember the tsunami that hit was it was it India? I forget. It was it was somewhere around the Indian Ocean and it wiped out I think 100,000 people. Killed them. Killed them all. I didn't hear as many visceral reactions to that 
questioning God, angry at God, turning their backs on God, denying any part of Him, than if something would have happened personally to them. I noticed that. It seems to me it is more likely that we will turn on God if something really bad happens to us. Or we will at least very very much question Him. Our faith might be shaken. On the other hand, we can hear of human misery in untold amounts, especially with the media, brought into your home, brought into your screen, brought into your computer, brought into your phone. Everywhere you look, there's suffering, there's tragedy. But yet it seems there isn't the intensity of reaction toward God about that than if it happens to us. Well, come on, Ray, that, that's totally understandable for heaven's sake. We experience our own reaction, our own emotions when something bad happens to us. We, we realize at a very gut level what that suffering is. You can watch other people suffer, but, but they're removed from you. It's not in your existence to the degree that you are in your existence. I, I understand that. But it still has perplexed me that if something bad happens to me, that can set in motion my questioning of God. But if it happens to you, I don't question God anywhere near as much. I may say I don't understand why somebody like you had to suffer. And I may say I don't understand why there is suffering. But if it happens to me, it's tempting to go beyond the I don't understand to the I don't accept. Now, you call it personalizing. You call it being focused on yourself. We are. That's fallen human nature. But I think it's it's something that's got to be resisted. I, I do. I can look around me and see people who have who have been hit with crises and tragedies far beyond what I have. And it doesn't affect me if it would like happen to me. I was at a family conference over the weekend. Um, and the priest gave a homily at the Mass about a family who had a flat tire. The dad and the teenage son pulled over to the side on the interstate. And by the way, please, please, if you're going to pull your car over on the interstate, get out of the car. Get away from the car. How sad that happens all the time. People plow into a parked car on the interstate. And the dad and the son were changing the tire. And a young man, probably intoxicated, supposedly on drugs, plowed into him, killed them both. 
the mom who was out of the car and probably off to the side or behind the berm saw all this. Priest said she had to forgive that young man. She said, my life is ruined. I've lost my husband and my son. My life is ruined. But so is his. She forgave him. But many people wouldn't. Many people would say, how can there be a good God to let this happen to me? You can see it happening to others, and it doesn't affect you the same way. I understand that. I mean, that's human, okay? I'm not naive about this. I'm not going to say, okay, Ray, you got to feel every bit as miserable when somebody else is hurting as when you're hurting. No, I know that's not the way we're wired, but I do think I also have to fight that so that I don't say, if it happens to me, God, then I'm not sure I want to have anything to do with you. But if it happens to them... Well, won't shake me up quite as much. Sometimes it is very good to fight your natural inclination. I'm Dr. Ray. When we come back, diving. Used to say diving into the stack. Now I'm just diving into my phone. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Today's programming on 990 WDEO is brought to you in part by a gift from our day sponsor. St. Catherine of Siena. She's not just our patron, she's our hero. What can she teach us today? Resilience, determination, and compassion. At St. Catherine Academy, we're following her lead, rising to challenges, protecting, and inspiring others. We may not leap tall buildings, but we embody Christ's love. Discover how your daughter can become a modern-day hero. Visit us at our open house on November 9th from 6 to 8 p.m. and be part of something truly extraordinary. Beacon Skin and Surgeries is a comprehensive dermatology center on the border of Troy and Rochester Hills, south of M59, and in Livonia. Beacon Skin and Surgeries perform full skin exams and focus on the diagnosis and treatment of all types of skin cancer and precancerous lesions. All are board-certified dermatologists and fellowship-trained surgeons. Call 248-852-1900. Beacon Skin and Surgeries, a beacon for patient care. 248-852-1900. This week on Christ is the Answer, Father John continues with his series on the Theology of the Body. The Theology of the Body's books and teachings were developed from five years' worth of homilies presented by Pope St. John Paul II. He preached about the dignity and beauty of our physical form, which is the image of God reflected in our very existence. Join us this week as Father John shows us the glory in our creation. Tune in for Christ is the Answer, Monday through Fridays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. From a firm films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. You are in danger, Mary. This child. What is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem. Starring Fiona Palomo, Milo Mannheim, Lecrae, Joel Smallbone, and Antonio Banderas. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere this Friday. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. This email comes from someone who she put the topic, I, 
a theory I've not heard you or anyone address. Well, I would say that that would mean you haven't listened to every single show because I do address it a lot. My daughter is in her mid-50s. She's never been married. She has a son adopted from Russia who is now 19. The first nine months of his life were spent in an orphanage and from day one he has been an emotional handful. That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, We don't know what level of very early life neglect that that little guy went through. We don't know if he was held, rocked, talked to, human contact. We also don't know what his womb environment was like. Was there alcoholism in the womb? All of this can have an effect on the developing brain. He's been diagnosed with Tourette's. Tourette is a tick-like disorder. Neurological basis for it. Gets worse under stress. Has been in and out of several schools. That's probably because of his adjustment or behavior issues. And has spent the last six years being homeschooled. Maybe mom said, okay, I'm getting tired of getting calls from the school. He's now a freshman at a good Catholic college, but his time there may be short. (laughs) He lacks any kind of self-discipline. He smokes cigarettes, vapes, has done marijuana, drinks alcohol, eats enough food for two or three people, and has the worst temper, mostly reserved for his mother, incredibly disrespectful. She says, here's my theory. And she thinks this is, this is kind of why this young man is the way he is. From the time he was old enough to speak, my daughter has treated him as an equal. He's been asked for his preferences from everything from what foods he'd like to whether or not he'd like to go with her wherever she goes. In a nutshell, she's given him an incredible amount of power. So, when he opposes one of her decisions, tempers fly on both sides. Sads me to say he is treated like the husband she never had. My question. Besides being a good listener, is there anything I can do to help? Well, the question becomes... Are you helping by listening? In other words, if this is a constant reiteration of what this young man is doing and how it's been this way for so many years, and you listen, and she vents. Venting generally doesn't help anybody. But if what you describe is the case, and it's been the case for many, many years since since he was adopted, doesn't look like she's about to change anything. She's not going to change anything. She gets frustrated and she gets angry and she screams and yells as he screams and yells at her. So they have this, this very conflictual relationship. I think I would develop a reflexive response when she is bemoaning his latest thing. I'd say, what do you want to do about it? Well, what can I do about it? Well, you can do a lot of things. What do you want to do about it? Now, here's my guess. 
I don't suspect she's going to do much about it. Why? Well, because this has gone on for nearly two decades. And it is something that she's probably emotionally very tied to. This is her only son. And she so desperately wanted it to be nice and work out. And maybe he was when he was three or four. Oh, he was emotionally bratty or tough or a handful as you describe it. But for the most part, he was in her home and there was only so much damage he could do. But now he's a man. And he can be incredibly nasty, violent even. She tolerates it. She paying for his college. She paying for his car. My, my assumption is she probably is because... As you describe it, he lacks motivation. So somebody who lacks motivation is not likely to get and keep a job. So I would just repeatedly ask her, what do you want to do about it? What are you willing to do? What is stopping you from doing that? What are you afraid of? What do you think he's going to do if you did that? In other words, you're just continuously putting it back on her rather than complaining about how he is. Ask her about solutions. Now, some people would say, well, you know, Dr. Ray, if people are hurting, they need to tell you they're hurting. That's true. I agree with you. But here would be my question for Grandma. How long has she been complaining about this kid how long has she been saying this is what he does this is who he is this is how he acts this is how he's always acted now here's the new one he's done my guess would be it's <laughs> pretty much since he was little so at what point do we say i'm not really helping the situation by sitting here and, and commiserating it's not that you're not listening, you're putting it back onto her. And it'll become very clear to you whether she really wants to do anything about it. Typically, people who don't want to do something about it throw up all kinds of objections why they can't. They'll tell you why that won't work. They'll tell you their emotions won't let them. They'll tell you that they'd feel terrible doing it. They'll tell you they worry about how he'd react. They'll tell you all the reasons why they can't do anything about this. Your theory that she treated him as an equal, perhaps. I don't suspect that was the main problem. I think there were two more significant factors entering into this picture. One, his very, very early neurological wiring. I see a lot of overseas children in institutions for the first months or a few years of their lives, and more often than not, they can be very difficult to raise. It doesn't mean you don't take them in, but you brace yourself because there's a decent chance they're going to be tough. That's, I think, probably the major factor. The second one was, it sounds from what you're describing, she never really took control. Now, you've labeled it as she treats him as an equal and whatever he wants, she acquiesces. Okay, but that's a subset of not taking control. 
the parent sets limits. The parent enforces the limits. The parent structures the child's life, especially when they're younger. And if they don't do that, then a difficult kid, by nature, can be much more difficult. Several of my children had very risky, very turbulent beginnings. It's safe to say we had very little defiance. Very little. Why? Well, we established early on who mom and dad is. We love you lots, and we're not going to let you do that. And you'll see that we will follow through. So because of that, if we have a child who is making bad decisions in his life, as a general rule, he's not hostile or disrespectful to us because he didn't learn that. Even though making some of those decisions reflect some of his early, early starts. Alrighty, let me see where we're at on here. Marie, I'm teaching at a Catholic preschool, classical academy. I have 19 students, 3 to 5 year olds, in a Montessori environment. 3 to 4 of the students have serious disciplinary issues. One girl in particular is steadfastly defiant. She puts her fingers in her ears when I'm trying to speak to her. Tell me I'm not in charge, lies to my face, tries to get the other students not to listen to me. It's frustrating and discouraging. Oh, I love this. I put her in a dignity chair. I'll tell you, I have heard timeout mentioned. <laughs> we euphemize timeout. The thinking chair. I put her in <laughs> this. I've never heard dignity chair. <laughs> That's good. Uh, but my teacher tends to cuddle her and soften all the hard disciplinary moves I make. Well, you know, I would say, Marie, those are not hard disciplinary moves to put a kid in a chair. That's not exactly what I'd call a hard disciplinary move. If I tell her she owes me six minutes, the other teacher, who's my head teacher, will say, she only makes me do four. How do I combat that? You don't. You don't. If your head teacher doesn't agree, you're stuck. You're stuck. Uh, I think it may change not because of things that you've done. I think it may change because other parents may complain. They don't want their kids coming to a classroom where there is one, two, three, four kids that can create incredible disruption, unruliness. That's, I think, what will change it. I believe our classroom is completely unmanaged, and I don't know what to do. Since I'm kind of young, not the lead teacher, and new to this grade level. Dr. Ray, you would laugh if you saw the craziness of this room. No, Marie, I wouldn't. I would not. I've seen so much of this, especially at these preschool levels, because so many of the ideas and notions that now run how to keep order in a classroom have been disgorged, thrown away, chucked, because they're simply too traditional. And so you have what you're experiencing. 
It's not fair to the other kids that three or four kids can create this kind of disruption, this kind of chaos. Not fair. But yet, what you find is so many child development people think there's just a gentler way to do this. And there is, if it's authoritatively firm. But if it's just, we'll talk and we'll all get along, um, it doesn't work well with the kid who probably is a significant discipline problem at home. Grindy, thank you so very much for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. Let's see where we're at in terms of our e-persons. I have an 11-year-old grandson who has trouble talking to adults, like a teacher, his mother, who is my daughter. He also had these problems when growing up. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. The daughter also had these problems growing up. Mom. She would make life harder than it needed to be. My grandson has the same trouble. He has a tendency to mumble, to talk softly, and has trouble saying what he wants in a way that someone will listen. I'm not sure if he's afraid of failure or not being liked. you have any suggestions, Dr. Ray? When I was a consultant to Head Start programs way back, now I don't want to say how long ago it was, but most of those three- and four-year-olds that I worked with in the Head Start program are now on Social Security. We would periodically get a kid who simply would not speak to the teacher. When we talked to the parents, they would say, oh, no, she's a, she's a jabbermouth at home. Done nothing but just talk away. But in these novel situations that she obviously perceives as some kind of social threat, she just clams up. And not uncommonly, the dynamic in the classroom was that the other kids would speak for her or him. They'd say, well, that's Teresa. She doesn't talk. So I'll tell you what she wants. So the first thing I suggested was that the teachers not allow any other kid to speak for the child. And the second thing I suggested was offer the child something you know she would like. She could head the line going back to the bathroom. Or she could be the one to pass out snack. Something that you know in the normal course of operating that classroom. Now you've studied it. You've seen the look on her face. You know she would want to do this. You ask her, would you like to do this? Now I need to hear you say, yes, I would. 
and you give her a few seconds, four or five seconds, and then you move on. Okay, well, I guess right now you don't want to. We'll, we'll ask somebody else. I'll ask you next time. Make it in their interest to talk. Now, this 11-year-old son, I don't know what circumstances he's in when he refuses to talk or when he mumbles. But I think the parent... Now, okay, you said something significant here, Grandma. You said the parent did a lot of the same things. So you got a you got a complicating factor in this. The parent may be thinking, well I know how ill at ease I felt. I know how uncomfortable I was out in public having to talk to people even a little bit. So I don't really want to require him to say thank you or to say please or to say hello. Or to even make a simple request. If that's the case, then I guess she would probably just allow him to follow that pattern. Maybe he'll outgrow it at some point. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll always be an individual awkward in social situations. As you say your daughter is. On the other hand... If there are things, for example, out and about socially that, say you're at a restaurant and you've asked him if he wants dessert. He says to you, yes. You tell him, well, then you're going to have to look at the server and ask in a very clear way. If you don't, then I guess you don't want it. You make it in his interests to socially interact. Without mumbling, without looking down at his shoes, without kind of just shrugging and say, No, it's got to be an appropriate. doesn't have to be a monologue like I do. That's one thing I've never really struggled with, you know, social awkwardness. I've been a nerd and a dork. But the thing about being socially awkward is that you feel it. I never felt it. I didn't realize I was a nerd and a dork until my wife came along and said, Ray, you're kind of a nerd and a dork. Really? Wow. No wonder I couldn't get any dates. So given all that, look for the situations that it would be in his best interest to do a minimal human interaction which means eye contact, clear articulation, looking at the person, making the request, or, or, good place to start here, is manners. For example, restaurant, server brings something, he doesn't say thank you, remove it. Well, when she comes back, you need to look at her and say thank you. This is not cruel. This is simply saying, we had that rule with our kids who were who were not socially ill at ease. You have to say please and have to say thank you to somebody to get, to get it and to keep it. It's that simple. You better hope the server comes back because right now, that pizza's getting cold and you got nine brothers and sisters who are willing to chomp into it. You better hope she comes back. 
And that's what I would do. It's, it's a matter of kind of behaviorally shaping this young man into remedial, basic, social skills. He's never probably going to be Mr. Outgoing. That's not the way he's wired. And he probably got some of that genetically from his mom. He inherited it. That's his temperament. It's his wiring. The problem becomes, when you have a certain predisposition by your temperament, it is easy to go to extremes. The shy kid who won't talk to anybody. Or the kid who doesn't like to talk so he doesn't use manners. It's easy to get on a roll with your temperament and to express it far beyond your normal wiring. So, Grandma, that's what I would suggest on this. This is Dr. Ray. This is the doctor is in. This is the doctor is out. Giving you a little psychological booster shot. No side effects with this shot. Oh, other than perhaps if you become a little more well-adjusted, might be threatening to some people. As in, who do you think you are? This is E-Person Monday on The Doctor is In, Monday through Friday. Co-production of the EWTN. Catholic Radio Network, as well as Ave Maria Radio Communications in Ann Arbor. My producer man, Andrew Kruchek, is in Ann Arbor. Andrew is Audrey Rose 9, his uh, older daughter. He has a son, John. Uh, if she is, she's halfway through childhood. I remember when our first kid hit 9, I looked at my wife. I said, Andrew is halfway through childhood. Oh, this is this is kind of piggybacking somewhat on the previous e person who talked about being in a preschool classroom where there were three or four children who had the they were allowed by the big people to create unruly disruption in the whole class and to be incredibly disrespectful and defiant and the head teacher was, um, how shall we say, let us all just get along. And uh, the child wasn't really cooperating, but the head teacher just kept trying to be gentle and enlightened and psychologically correct. My husband and I are in our early 30s and expecting our first child. Many of our friends already have young children. And most seem to follow, whether intentionally or not, the current trend of gentle parenting. There is a lot of redirection and acknowledgement of, quote, big feelings 
in these families. And here's, here's the critical line. And the result appears to be a chaotic household with endless temper tantrums and crying and very little peace or harmony. My very first book was titled, You're a Better Parent Than You Think. It was an outgrowth of my being a young shrink, a shrinkling, at the Columbiana County Mental Health Center in Lisbon, Ohio. Right by East Palestine, by the way. Does East Palestine sound familiar to you? I used to work in East Palestine in the schools. Beautiful little small town. And I noticed that many of the parents coming into me, and this was pretty much probably on the front end of this new enlightened gentle parenting approach. Now don't mishear me, I'm not saying you you don't be gentle, but I'm saying you also be firm in your gentleness. Velvet strength. And I noticed that many of them were not enjoying their kids because they were trying to be psychologically correct. And I wrote the book, You're a Better Parent Than You Think, dealing with all of what I saw as unpleasantness in this whole child-rearing journey. And you're right. You're right, first-time mom, that this does, more often than not, create unnecessary chaos or defiance or unhappiness with the kid. That's the irony of the whole thing. More often than not, this gentle parenting, which means you avoid discipline at all costs. Discipline is not your first resort, it's your last resort. Now, if you have a kid who responds to this by temperament, easily cooperative, intimidated, yeah, it'll work really well. But you better hope you don't get a kid like that first, because you'll think, all right, I know what I'm doing, this is easy. God's gift to parenthood. And then the second one comes along and eats your gentle parenting book. My husband and I hope to create a loving home for our child while still managing to maintain firm discipline and strong authority. That's right. A loving home is firm discipline and strong authority. It's not dictatorial, kick the door down, I'm back and I'm ticked, punk. It's not like that. But you see... Those of you who are religious, you know, you bemoan the fact that our culture controls the language. And by controlling the language, they can influence you to accept things that you would otherwise not morally accept if you thought about it. But as long as the language is co-opted, then it's much more easy to influence and shape people. Well, gentle parenting is, is one of those pieces of language. Because the implication is, if you are calm and firm in your authority, that's not gentle parenting. Gentle parenting is, let's just talk about this. Let's all get along. Let's give choices. Let's let's let you know that I'm not happy with you throwing the doll into your sister's face. Gentle parenting is not taking the doll for a week. And making the child stand in the corner, that's not gentle parenting. Gentle parenting is avoiding having to discipline because you have the verbal skills to reach a child. Good luck. And the irony is, in my office, I deal with so many sweet people. 
who are gentle and have been gentle in their parenting. And their kid is eating them alive and they are unhappy and they have a bad relationship with this kid who's nine years old and they've been doing this for the last several years. And they know something's wrong, but they can't figure out what it is because they're doing what the experts are telling them to do. How would you suggest, Dr. Ray, we get off on the right foot? Well, you love with all your might and you discipline as soon as you have to. What age? Uh, it depends. Depends on more or less the developmental maturity of the kid. My uh, oldest son, I remember the first time I put him on the steps, he was, I don't know, about 15, 16 months, something like that. Which was really kind of early for the most part. And he really didn't understand that when you do X, the steps are Y. He didn't understand that. But that's okay. It was a link. You do A, I do B. Enough of those A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. I don't have to do B very often anymore. Because he knows A leads to B. I've used this analogy before. We had a 110-pound Rottweiler. Were we going to wait until our Rottweiler understood why he doesn't use our living room as his personal bathroom before we train him? No, we're going to train him. Do you think he thinks, you know... I'm I'm a four-year-old Rottweiler now, and uh, I feel, I'm old enough to really understand uh, the repercussions of pooping in my master's family room. And I'm starting to recognize why that's inappropriate and why I better exert some kind of self... Of course not! He knew. Outside. So, given that, and as soon as he did it, we showed it to him and we put him outside. Uh-oh. Do that in the living room and you're outside. Well, lo and behold, after a while, he didn't do that in the living room. Well, except on rare occasions when he had stomach problems or we weren't home for 15 hours. So, I think you can use the steps. My my son is is raising his... He's got three now, and he's got two little girls, five and almost three. And uh, they both are quite aware of what the chair is, what the corner is, what the steps are. And uh, <laughs> I mentioned before that my my five-year-old granddaughter told her dad as she was pondering theology, she said, you know, if, if Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned, we wouldn't have stairs. My son said, huh? Well... If she, if they didn't sin, we wouldn't sin, and if if I didn't sin, then I wouldn't have to sit on the steps, and we wouldn't need stairs. <laughs> There's a certain five-year-old logic to that. So to continue here, Texas mom, when is a child old enough to cry and pitch a fit at being told no, not immediately getting to what they want, but too young to understand timeout? What do you do? Well, you remove them from the situation. If a child's throwing a fit, you maybe. Put him in a playpen or put him in his crib. Oh, I know, Dr. Ray, you can't use the crib. The crib is a wonderful, quiet place where they are supposed to enjoy peace. And if you put him in the crib, they're going to have ambivalent feelings towards their bed and their bedroom. Oh, yeah, right. Nice theory. Doesn't hold up. So you can soothe a one-year-old. But when you decide, okay, there's there's a willful component here. And even though this child is only 16 months old, there's a willful component so I'm gonna I'm gonna put him in a playpen until he calms down, or I'm gonna I'm gonna strap him in the high chair. 
I'm going to start. Most people don't start till between the ages of two and three. But you can start earlier, depending upon child's developmental maturity and, uh, and how you want to start training. I better take a break here because I ran past it. Don't punish me. Be gentle. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. What comes to your mind when you hear the word passion? Passion often signifies intensity of emotions and feelings, frequently in terms of lust. But the Catholic Catechism tells us passions are neither good nor bad in and of themselves. In other words, passions are morally good if they contribute to a good action, and evil if they bring about the opposite result. The most fundamental passion is love, says the Catechism. It is aroused by attraction to the good, the desire to attain the good, and fulfilled by joy and pleasure once the good is possessed. Evil, on the other hand, arouses hatred, aversion, and fear. Passions are the passageway connecting the senses and the mind. Jesus said the source of all passions was the human heart. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. I feel cultured, Andrew. Thank you for that music. You know, this, this, I'm reading this again. It's another email of the same genre because it's just reinforcing so much of what I have to, not have to, what I deal with and I hear. I recently returned to the workforce after being home for years, raising and homeschooling my own children. I expected that there would be some things different, so some things didn't surprise me. But one thing that did was this thing called conscious discipline. See, we, we've got all kinds of names, we've got all kinds of synonyms for the new and enlightened ways to guide children. We are not allowed to use time out with the kids. That doesn't surprise me. So many child development notions and theories say that time out's bad. It's socially isolating a child. It is shaming a child. It is, it is not getting to the root of the misconduct. 
All you're doing is putting a consequence on the misconduct. It's not getting to the root of it. You've got to get to the root of it so the child absorbs proper behavior. I'm all for that. But you can't get to the root of it if you don't stop the misconduct. Because the misconduct, a la sin nature, is wired into the kids. So therefore, they're going to do what comes easiest, which is oftentimes to resist, to do what they want. We acknowledge that grown-ups sin and have to be held accountable. But we, we don't want to do that with the kids. She said, I work with some kids that are young. And distraction works well with them. But they're under the age of three. That's true. You can distract a little kid. But if a, if a three-year-old punches another little kid in the head, how do you distract them? Uh, <clears throat> you, you need to go over and hit that kid over there. Okay? Go punch the wall. It's it's got a mat on it. You won't hurt your you won't hurt your fist. What, how how do you distract even at age three a kid who clearly is aggressive or nasty? She says the older kids, on the other hand, are extremely out of control and are under six years old. The workers are frustrated. What is going on, Doctor Ray? Our parents just not disciplining, broken families, too many electronics. Thanks for your time. Lori, Lori, what's going on is new and enlightened ways to raise, to educate, to guide children. What, what you're pointing out, and I, I saw a recent study that said 55% of teachers surveyed want to get out of the profession. What is that saying? So instead of saying we've got to restore some order and authority into the classroom so that people can enjoy each other, we allow an enormous amount of misconduct as we try to softly talk the child into behaving well. Now, if that works, go for it. But mostly it doesn't. It is so obvious it is, the, it is the wisdom of the ages that we've overthrown because we're just so much smarter than that now. I've said this over and over and over again. I'm watching the outcome, the results of the new and improved, enlightened, psychologically correct way to raise children. And it's now working. Disgruntled preschool teachers, disgruntled teachers, disgruntled parents. Why? Because the kids are just doing what comes naturally to resist this stuff. Alrighty. Well, I gotta run. I appreciate the company. And I will work on my toxic gentleness. This is Dr. Ray. Take a gentle walk with our Lord. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.